democracy. Atomic bomb. Crime from threatening freedom. We fail and freedom fail. Hello and welcome to Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast about the future of the international order. My name is Peter Sparding and with my colleague Rachel Tausenfreund, I will be your host today. Hi Rachel. Hey Peter. Um, we're here live. This is our first live uh, episode. Yeah, it takes some podcasts a long time to actually get to this stage and we're already there. So uh, get ready for more of this. We're going to take this on the road. Um, But we are joined by uh, two guests. To my left here is uh, Janka Oertel, my colleague uh, in our Asia program uh, from Berlin. Hey, Peter. And then we are very delighted to have a special, I think it's our first outside GMF guest, uh, Josh Rogan of the Washington Post and of CNN fame. I'm honored, thank you. <laughs> so um, this really should have been our first session. We have so far discussed uh, more specific questions uh, like China, Germany, Russia, uh, US foreign policy. But really what we should have done is start with a session about what is the liberal international order anyway. So, you know, better late than never. We are actually going to do this today. And what we thought we would do first is have Rachel basically explain what it is and then discuss why it's important and what the problems are. But Rachel has kindly offered to maybe help us uh, kick this off by actually giving us a bit of a definition or explanation what we're even talking about when we talk about the international liberal order. So Rachel, why don't you solve this easy question first? Great, thanks. Um, so first of all, this question is enticing to become like super professorial. So please interrupt me when this gets too long. Um, I'm going to give a super basic definition that I think we can 80% all agree on, and then we'll spend the rest of the time talking about the parts of the order or the liberalness that uh, aren't exactly clear from what I said. So I'm going to start actually... Um, with this 101 before the liberal international order, which is what there was before that. What there was before that was um, what IR people call the Westphalian system, which was a system of sovereign states, where the sovereignty of individual states was respected and also they were supposed to be equal. Now, in practice, of course, that wasn't really the case. About 100 years after the Westphalian peace, Poland was invaded and divided, um, for example. And then come World War I, World War II, and they decided this system of sovereign states wasn't working very well. Um, and the new power in the uh, on the block, the United States, built this new system, the liberal international order, um, around 1944-45. So I guess I'll divide it into the liberal part and the order part. The liberal part is in IR terms, so not in sort of Hillary Clinton liberal terms, but in international relations liberal terms, in contrast to realism. So in the liberal idea of things, cooperation between states is possible um, and beneficial, and um, the rule of law is primary, right? Systems should be regulated by rules as opposed to power. Um, so you have the rule of law, cooperation between states, uh, which means also sort of open cooperation, whereas the system before was a bunch of like secret pacts and alliances. So rules and open cooperation that apply to all. Also, respect for civil rights and democracy is part of the liberal system. Then comes the order. Um, I mean, the most fundamental 
ordering body of the liberal international order is the United Nations. 1945, that took this idea of state sovereignty but added to it um, a prohibition of aggressive force. So you're all sovereign states, but you need to stop invading each other and killing people. Um, and also with this idea of increasing freedom for people and, um, and human rights is in the UN charter. Um, and then you have the other system, which interestingly was signed before the UN, which we call the Bretton Woods system. That's the economic part of the liberal order, which is the World Bank, their National Monetary Fund, and the GATT, which is now the WTO, which re um, regulates trade. So that's the economic part of the system, which is again based on free market economy or free-ish market economy and cooperation and economic cooperation. Um, and that's basically the liberal international order. Well, thank you. That was very <laughs> concise and uh, textbook. So why are we talking about this? Um, so for, I would say, a few decades now, we've discussed that there's kind of a challenge to this system or a potential challenge coming from outside this system. So we'll get to that in a bit. But there's also now in the last few years an increasing discussion about an inside challenge. So this is since the Brexit vote and then a certain presidential election in the U.S. So there's been this discussion whether the system is being challenged, attacked uh, from two sides. So we're, we're going to start with the kind of inside question. I wanted to ask Josh, so you're kind of the one of the not the premier foreign policy watcher in, in D.C. You've followed now the Trump presidency for more than a year. Is it accurate to describe that the Trump administration or Trump himself or so represents an inside challenge threat to this order that Rachel just laid out? Yes. Oh, good. That was quick. <laughs> so we can wrap this up now. Yeah. Do you want to expand a bit? Why? Sure. Why not? <laughs> since we have the time. First of all, thank you so much for including me. You know, I think, you know, um, the best way I can sort of illustrate what's going on in Washington with regards to this, this issue is through a, a quick anecdote. And this is my last column for the Washington Post, which appeared on Monday. And it was about how the Trump administration views what we call the infrastructure of democracy, the the, the outside uh, mechanisms and organizations that the United States has helped set up, mostly since the 80s, but some before then, uh, to expand and uh, build resilience and to, uh, um, to advocate for this liberal international order as you've ably defined it. So the story is this. There, at the State of the Union address, President Trump made a big show of, a, you know, um, highlighting a North Korean defector who had escaped under the most egregious circumstances from the worst kind of uh, repression and torture and made it all the way to South Korea and then eventually to the United States to stand in the halls of the U.S. Congress and celebrate our shared commitment to the freedom that he worked so hard to achieve. He was a grantee of the National Endowment for Democracy. Now, National Endowment for Democracy at that moment, Riley thought that maybe the Trump administration had their back. Only days later would they find out that when the State Department's fiscal 2019 budget request was issued, there was a proposal buried deep inside of it, which not a lot of people noticed, to totally slash and dismantle the National Endowment of Democracy and its relationships with its core institutes, including the National Democratic Institute and the International Republican Institute, among others. 
And, uh, you know, they were freaked out. And, uh, you know, so they, you know, what does this mean? Is this really going to happen? What are they trying to do? And in the course of reporting it out, I sort of, you know, found what I tend to find when I look at the Trump administration's approach to foreign policy, you know, an internal competition, uh, message confusion, uh, policy churn, and strategic uh, neglect, okay? And it's a story born out of a campaign, a campaign that was built around a foreign policy that no one ever believed would need to be implemented because no one ever really believed that Trump would win, including the people who worked for Trump. But their foreign policy platform was pretty basic. It was a rejection of whatever they determined was the establishment thinking on foreign policy that had, in their minds, gotten us to a place where, guess what, the world's problems haven't been solved and the systems that we haven't set that we have set up have shown some problems and and endured some challenges. It was a mostly a political play at the time by people close to the, the candidate himself, and it sparked a huge division in the Republican Party. Remember, there were most of the Republican foreign policy establishment was publicly and openly and passionately against the Donald Trump candidacy during the primary. And they're, they, because, again, they didn't think he was going to win, they didn't think there was any sort of consequence for them saying that as loudly as they could. Uh, and sure enough, that deepened their rift with the people who actually were involved in the campaign. So you had the Never Trumpers, you, and then you had the, the, the Trump people, and then all of a sudden he gets elected, and both of them turn to each other and say, oh my God, what are we going to do? And ever since then, there's been, I think, a couple of different struggles playing out. One is between the U.S. government and the Trump administration. And this is, plays out in a number of ways every single day on all parts of the government. And it's between those people, even Republicans and some Democrats, some intelligence people, some diplomatic people, some uh, defense people, you name it, uh, who are still going forth in, with the mindset that all of these uh, programs and initiatives and ideals and values that they've been working on their whole careers on inside the U.S. government, are, is that, that's still the plan. And then you have a, at least a contingent inside the Trump administration that's trying to alter that plan. But I'm here to tell you that even inside that contingent, there is a hot debate that rages every day on several important issues. And you have people in the cabinet who disagree with people at the White House. You have people inside the White House factions that disagree with each other on these fundamental issues. And it produces a fascinating array of results depending on issue to issue. And there's no predictability because there's no structure because basically they're in a constant state of chaos. Uh, so th because there's no way to predict, that causes sort of risks of miscalculation, uncertainty, uh, strains alliances, as I probably don't have to tell this group, and you know has second and third degree unintended consequences that they haven't even begun to accommodate. Sometimes good outcomes come, uh, come out. You know, uh, we can get into examples of that. Sometimes they don't. You know? And then at the top, you have the president of the United States, who every single time he opens his mouth makes it very clear how he feels about this. Okay? He simply does not believe that it's in America's interest, or, nor that it's America's mission, to promote abroad these ideals, rule of law, human rights, open markets, you name it. Okay, he's been very clear from the very beginning. Um, you know, if you 
If you didn't like that, then you shouldn't have voted for him. And if you are surprised that now he's trying as hard as he can to implement that vision, then you weren't paying attention, okay? But he, strangely enough, he doesn't always have the last word. And he can't be everywhere all the time. And he does change his mind about things or can be persuaded or, you know, at least pressured uh, to do things that are against his instincts. Not all the time. There's no predictability. Uh, so inside of that dynamic, what is emerging in Washington is a, I don't want to use the word, you know, opposition. I don't want to use the word resistance. I want to say a, a, a movement uh, to bolster the resilience of the organizations and people who are promoting this idea that we're here to talk about. And that's been fascinating in a number of ways. A lot of it involves Congress, just taking on an increased role in all sorts of foreign policy, but especially when it comes to these very things. Uh, a good example of that was uh, last week, as I was reporting about the story about the NED, uh, there was a, a, a move to name the plaza in front of the Russian embassy in Washington, D.C. after Boris Nemtsov, okay? the former deputy prime minister, was murdered exactly three years ago. Uh, even Congress couldn't pass the bill, okay? And there's a pretty simple bill, right? Never got to the floor. Okay, the D.C. City Council stepped in and passed the bill in the city council and they renamed the street. And so we had the ceremony to rename the street in front of the Russian embassy after Boris Nemtsov with, you know, that was done by Ward 3 councilwoman. I'm sorry, I can't remember her name, but uh, that's my bad. And uh, State Department Assistant Secretary for Europe, Wes Mitchell, showed up and gave a speech touting, uh, you know, the international liberal order and America's duty to protect it. So think about that, all right? It's a struggle. It's ongoing. It's being fought in a number of very interesting ways. Uh, the, the story is not yet finished. It's not yet written. Uh, I think, you know, a couple of closing thoughts. You know, there's a recognition amongst people who support this idea. And, you know, I'm, as an opinion columnist, I'm happy to tell you that I'm among that community, as is our editorial board of the Washington Post. Um, you know, there's a recognition that we've lost the thread with the American people and, and, and that we failed to explain and uh, bring them along in this effort for years, if not decades, if not longer. And part of it is to re-educate the American people about why not only these uh, uh, ideas are important for American values and for the interests of the world, but also for the interests of American national security. And that argument that values and interests are connected and even uh, work in tandem is something that the American people simply don't uh, believe, according to polls, the way that they used to. So that means a lot of domestic organizations. There's a new national summit for democracy. It has nothing to do with foreign policy, just to bolster, de bolster democratic institutions at home. Um, but, you know, I'll just close by saying that, you know, you know, the enemy gets a vote, okay? And it's the American people didn't get lost all by themselves. And, you know, the malign activities of close authoritarian government seeking to interfere and influence and undermine free societies is ramping up, all right? Primarily from Russia in the short term and primarily from China in the long term. It's once one, one person official described it to me as, you know, Russian interference is like your eyebrows are on fire. Chinese interference is like your house is burning down. You need to deal with them both, okay? Now, when I come to Europe, as sometimes, uh, you know, as I have done half a dozen times over the last couple of years, 
I find a lot of concern about this, a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstanding. To the extent that we, you know, the Trump administration has been bad in handling the U.S. relationship with Europe, I think that's, that's an important first step. It's just to get back on the same page. Um, but in terms of, like, the calls that I often hear for uh, the Trump administration to reassert U.S. leadership in the area of inter defending the international, or the liberal international order, as it's described, I'm here to tell you that ultimately uh, we could be in for a very long period before that leadership returns, four or maybe even eight years. How we mitigate the risks of that and how we fill those gaps and how we keep that struggle it going in the right direction until that time passes, I think is the crucial question we have to ask ourselves. Great, thanks. So that's the situation in the US, arguably the, the most important country that currently or has been underpinning this order. So, but even before there was chaos in the US, there was a challenge coming, or there was a, people were arguing that a challenge was coming from the outside. And that's kind of the textbook. If you study international relations, there's a rising power, there's the existing hegemon. Eventually, so say many IR theories, the rising power will in some way challenge the hegemon. So we're going to ask our colleague Yanka, who focuses on Asia, whether the situation mostly described with China, but maybe in more broadly in Asia, is that what we are witnessing there? And is it inevitable? Is, is that the accurate picture we have? Thanks, Peter. I think um, just kind of linking the, two to the, the, the discussion together also with the U.S. domestic debate, I think the lines between an internal and an external threat are relatively blurred, especially if you talk about the liberal international order. And if you name the United Nations as one of the examples, I mean, China was there from the start. They were in the first discussions. They were in Yalta. You know, that Martin Zedong was there, not in Yalta, but we, the, the, the discussions were going on with China um, from the beginning. So you see the rise of a hegemon or a new rising power for the first time within a sort of institutional framework that exists. And this has never happened before. So this is actually the first test case. We cannot, actually, we cannot make, we cannot draw a historic line from, you know, the fall of the British Empire or whatever other empire, the Roman Empire you want to talk about. So this is, this is the first point, I think. China is already deeply in, in, uh, engaged in rules that are also beneficial for it. So it has an interest in protecting a lot of the existing order. So maybe, the, and on the other hand, the U.S. has at various times had a conflicted relationship with the order it established, not least from the very beginning when you had, you know, Franklin Donald Roosevelt going to Congress and begging basically for support for signing the UN Charter. This wasn't a winner in the beginning. This was a very realistic, pragmatic attempt. And I think maybe to draw the discussion about the liberal order back and take less of the liberal feel to it, more of the realist, pragmatic take on this is actually a good way to govern the world idea is something that might also help to bring along some of the skeptics that don't like the liberal part of the liberal international order. So that said, um, China being within the system, trying to change some of the rules of the play, of the game. And um, I think we have to be very careful um, to be nuanced about what actually is happening. Um, so what we face um, in terms of interference operations, in terms of military um, aggressions within the region, assertiveness in the region, that's definitely a challenge to existing um, existing uh, rules, existing norms, existing, existing legal systems. Um, but this is not 
this is not all of the story. So we need, to ha we need to hear all sides of the story. We need to look into what is China doing in terms of United Nations peacekeeping operations. Is it stepping in a void and actually stabilizing the African continent? Is that good for Europe or is that bad for Europe? Um, what we also, a trap that we also don't, shouldn't fall into is the trap that in Europe, I'm German also, um, as Peter, and you know, we really had our problems with the Bush administration. The Iraq war was kind of a watershed moment for German foreign policy at the time. Trump is even worse than that, and that's really hard, and I don't think you know, everyone, anyone ever thought that could, could get worse. Um, but by not liking Trump, and being, being very opposed to his approach to policy, falling into the trap that China all of a sudden looks good is a very, very dangerous move. It's very dangerous to think that we can be the, uh, the, the ben that we can benefit from a potential conflict between China and, and the United States as long as we kind of keep quiet and not do much, uh, that Europe will be in the end, you know, we'll be laughing in the end and we'll be saying, oh, we get the profits from both sides. I don't think that's going to happen. And I think we need to start looking at the meta level, at the level that's above that, that's a, beyond the discussions about aluminum and steel tariffs. The commitment of the United States, the overall commitment to the, of the United States to the established order is still there. And we're much closer in Europe to the, United, to, to the United States than we are to China in that regard. And it's important to have that narrative, to keep that narrative going despite transatlantic dissonance that we have at the moment. But that is a very difficult thing to do. And China is very apt at abusing and using this moment to destroy, these, um, yeah, to destroy the transatlantic link as well. Um, I just want to jump in, because you said China is an interesting test case. Um, and, and I think you're right about that. And if I get back to the, you know, the sort of broad, nerdy definition of the liberalism versus realism, and um, I think Peter set it up as this, you know, the new rising power challenging the old order. And the, the kind of dream behind the liberal international order is exactly this. China's there from the beginning. Then in, you know, 1972, we really let them in. They start rising. And then the... the having them in the club is supposed to convert them, right? This is the dream of the liberal system, is then instead of them challenging the order that exists, they buy into the order and they become more and more like us as it goes forward. Um, and the problem is now people are wondering or people are starting to doubt, right? It seems like, okay, maybe that's not happening. Um, and I think you could say two things here, right? So when I laid out before if you think about the principles of liberalism, so rule of law, cooperation, sort of legal cooperation, um, but also civil rights, human rights, and democracy. And with China, we made an exception to say, okay, they're not, you know, they're not very supportive of civil rights, they're definitely not democratic, but if they have open economies and if they trade with us more and work with us more, they're gonna definitely become more democratic and freer. We don't see that happening. So first of all, that poses a really interesting question. If they otherwise were cooperating with the system, does each individual country have to be democratic? Right? The Chinese would, would argue, no. We can be whatever we want to be inside our own boundaries, but we're still part of the system. So I think this is an interesting, interesting question. I don't have the answer. I'm just asking the question. Josh has the answer. Um, Josh has the answer. Or, the, or maybe the uh, participants here have the answer. And the second part is... I think we also need to be realistic about this idea of we're letting them into the system. 
because did we really fully let them into the system? You know, did we miss some opportunities? For example, reforming the International Monetary Fund, which is, how long has that been on the books? I don't know. Um, a decade, in, a decade maybe in the United States. Everyone knows it's supposed to happen. We're supposed to give more voting rights to um, these growing economies and Congress won't pass the bill. So we're saying, yes, come into our system, but there are rules and we're not changing the rules and we're not letting you become a rule maker. So, um, so maybe we failed first and they're failing now. I'm not sure, but I think we, we, we too often forget our part of the failing. Can I add to that before you jump in? Because then I can do the self-criticism or, well, U.S. criticism that will inevitably come up in this. You know, there's the criticisms. Actually, you know, this all sounds really great, but really hasn't the West already long abandoned the system? Of course, if you're from Europe, uh, you will inevitably, and before anyone here gets to ask us, I will ask it, Iraq is always the uh, topic that will come. But, but even beyond that, you know, global war on terror, there are many human rights questions and so on. So there will be the question, hasn't the West already, to a degree, abandoned some of the values that it, it professes to defend in this? So just to pile that on, Josh, sure. now you can give us the answers. Sure. I think we could have a whole uh, panel on who lost China, okay? <laughs> I think that's something that eventually historians are going to have to try to figure out. Uh, you know, I... There's a the the, narr the conventional wisdom in Washington is that oh well you know we, just what you said is uh, you know we had placed a bet that if we uh, opened our doors to China that they would liberalize if not politically at least economically if not economically you know at least they wouldn't set about setting our system ablaze from the inside okay and uh, you know I happen to think that that's not exactly right my sort of take on it is that uh, no we gave China a choice okay. It, you know, and it wasn't that we thought they were going to do one or the other. We gave them an opportunity to choose to, to work with us, and I don't think it's really debatable anymore which choice they have made, okay? And they've gone the other way, okay? And now we've got to deal with that. And so, you know, I don't happen to believe that it, it, was, it was a problem of us not fully letting them, uh, them into their system. Um, I happen to believe that, China is not stabilizing the African continent, that actually their involvement in Africa is increasingly showing itself to be predatory and, uh, you know, just really a, a threat to all, all of these values that we hold dear and could really send the continent into a, a generation of misery that even worse than what it is now. We can get into that if you want. Um, but anyway, it all gets us back to the same question, which is, you know, what do we do now? And, uh, you know, I think that the, the, the sheer size of the Chinese economy does represent uh, a unique and previously unseen threat to, because it has the ability to uh, really change all of these organizations and structures and infrastructure that we hold dear. And uh, basically my take on this is that we've got to believe the Chinese Communist Party when it tells us what it's doing. And I think it's been very clear, especially recently, okay? And why not just take them at their word that they, sit, they are, have now moved from defending sovereign interests of China inside China to advocating, if not advancing through coercion, uh, a, an international system based on 
what they call globalism with Chinese characteristics. And then if we take a look at what that actually means, uh, there's some pretty scary stuff in there. Uh, so uh, we can get more into that, but I, I just, you know, I think there's sort of a, there's a discussion over how did we get China so wrong, which is largely academic, and then there's now a, what I consider to be a more ur urgent discussion about, you know, uh, what do we have to do to make sure that that mistake is uh, not compounded. But what is the U.S. willing to do? I mean, that's, that's the whole question. The question that I raised with regard to China and Africa was not that I think that China is terribly stabilizing Africa. I do not think so. But, you know, take the example Mali. There's a German peacekeeping contingent there. There's a Chinese peacekeeping contingent there. They're about the same size. How do they cooperate with each other? How much intelligence do you share? How much intelligence can you share? If you don't want China's help, will the United States be there to help stabilize the African continent, which is important for the future of order in Europe, and the future of order in Europe has just been shown to receive like a massive blow by the Italian elections. That was a migration-induced crisis there as well. So there is something to be done in, uh, for Europe in its neighborhood, in its immediate neighborhood, and China happens to be there. How are we supposed to deal with that? How are we supposed to not take them by their word at that point and say, um, maybe you want to contribute some because you also have interest in stability? I'm just raising that as a question because I think that the, the, the way the U.S. has pulled back from the United Nations um, and is talking about definancing and all of that stuff um, does have a significant effect on Europe's stability. Yeah, sure. I mean, listen, I think it's, it's, a, it's a crucial question and I think it's, there's a complicated answer. One is that, you know, we, it's, it's such an important relationship, especially the U.S.-China relationship, that we, we have to, you know, cooperate on certain things. We have to, you know, leave the door open for China to play a constructive role. And even in Africa, there are a lot of things that we can probably cooperate with China on. Uh, and we, we, if, if it makes sense, if it's in both of our interests, and we can do it in a way that's transparent and doesn't sacrifice our security or our interests or our values, yeah, we should definitely pursue that. I think that's, that's clear. Uh, you know, at the same time, you know, we just have to be clear-eyed about the China strategy in Africa, which, again, they've laid out very explicitly, okay, and we see implemented countries all over Africa, which is, you know, to ensnare a lot of these governments through just rank corruption into, you know, a debt trap that will imperil their economies for a generation and you know, the, how can we get, how, what can we do about that? I mean, the answer is obvious, is to increase our uh, attention and resources to giving these African countries a better alternative and to bring them back into the fold through, you know, a combination of economic development, humanitarian assistance tied to programs that help Af Africans help themselves. And again, I'm not even, an, uh, I'm not a, claiming to be an expert on China-Africa relations, but it seems to me uh, that if we don't offer a, uh, a better alternatives, then you couldn't blame these countries for taking the money that's on the table. And, but I just don't see how that ends in a, or it, I think in, in, it, on some of these issues, we just have to be clear about what the Chinese are doing and realize that we're not going to be able to see eye to eye on it. But that's, I think, the moment where we see the vacuum of U.S. leadership most, because this is a time where China's activities are receiving a significant amount of blowback in Africa, but also in Central Asia, along the Belt and Road, there's a lot of people that are not so happy and a lot of countries that are not so happy with China's engagement and with China's understanding of international order, with China's version of an international order. Um, but at this point in time, who will pick it up? Who will be the leader? I don't think anybody leader? is. Yeah. I, yeah, no, I agree with you that 
well, I mean, let's say that all of us are abdicating our responsibility to provide a viable alternative in the sense that America has been doing it for the last 70 years. Yes, I guess you could put most of the blame on the country that used to be doing it, or you could put the blame on the entire community that believes in these values who are also not doing it. Either one I could agree with. Yeah, I'm going to go I'm going to go with both or all. It's not really fair to say, well, you did it for 70 years, we haven't done it yet. And America does and a lot. And, you know, there are huge programs, and, you know, it's a very controversial subject. And, of course, inside, we go back to the, what's going on in Washington, right? There's a fight both between the U.S. government and the Trump administration and inside the Trump administration over the role of U.S. development assistance, how it should be structured, wh- whether it should exist at all. I mean, these are some fundamental questions that we're asking ourselves right now, again, because we sort of failed to defend them internally for all of these years Yes, it's very serious. It's very dire. It, the, the, the situation does not look like it's going in a positive direction. I'm not, I can't claim otherwise. I can just tell you what the people who don't want to see, uh, you know, uh, Chinese hegemony in Africa uh, believe could be done to stop it if there were the will and the resources, which you're right, there just right now aren't. So we've discussed on the few previous episodes exactly who can, who, if anyone, can fill the vacuum. And so we've had four or five of these. And so far, the answer has always been uh, not that country that we discussed in that episode. So <laughs> it's not very uh, hopeful. So this is the, of course, we, we haven't talked about Europe yet much, but precisely because there's so many internal um, issues in Europe and it's not the most stable situation here either. It's difficult to imagine. And European countries by themselves, we've talked about Germany, it's just... That's not the the free leader, uh, the leader of the free world, as as we discussed. But so that leads me to maybe the the last round of, of questions before we open it up. So um, what does that mean? What what uh, is going to happen? So uh, right now, the way I, I think about it is that most uh, international actors are kind of waiting to see if the U.S. Right now, we, we people assume this is a four year thing. Maybe Josh already said could be longer. And then there's this well. People say it won't snap back to the way it was, but maybe a little bit. Maybe the U.S. will come back and, and pick up the slack. First question is, uh, can can that even hold for, for three more years from now on? And is this even a viable alternative? Or what, uh, if you look into the future, what do you think uh, is likely to happen? So this, you can, you know, let your imagination run wild. I guess I'll start. <laughs> uh, you know... Again, when I talk to people, uh, you know, my job is to go around and sort of talk to the people smarter about me about these things and sort of try to figure out uh, where the center of gravity is. It seems to me that the, the, the struggle between sort of, you know, free societies and, uh, and the authoritarianism on the march is a long one, okay, and won't be solved in three years or ten years or maybe in a hundred years, Okay. Um, we thought it was over, right? After the Cold War, we were like, oh, great. We, we did it. The end of history. History didn't end. And, you know, certain countries didn't stop. And, you know, and now we're paying the price for that. But it's not over. And now there's a recognition and a realization that, you know, especially after the 2016 election, that, for example, Russia's malign activities are of a new nature, a new character and need to be addressed with new solutions and new capabilities. And we're now marshalling that effort in the United States and Europe uh, to respond to these new weapons. Okay, that's a big part of it. Um, It's not determined who's going to win, okay? I believe that the arc of history bends towards justice, you know. But in the end, you know, either we're going to move towards a world that's based on, you know, 
human rights, compassion, mutual respect, you know, open markets, you know, the overall progress of humanity towards uh, a world that's more just and where people have more dignity and self-determination, or we're going to lose. And I think that's going to be, a, you know, that's a, that's a possibility, and that would be a very dark day for humanity. Yeah, if we, uh, if, if we realize that, that history doesn't end but it usually bites back, then I think it is the time for, um, for Europeans to reach out to what you have do you, what you didn't want to label the Washington resistance, but which one might be able to label the Washington resistance to defend the liberal international order and to reach out to that part of the United States that is very vibrant, very democratic, and very willing to put up a fight for what they believe in. And I think this is um, probably one of the times where transatlantic cooperation is needed most on, on a lot of the issues that we are talking about. So um, maybe as a, as a takeaway for Europe, I would say I'm a horrible optimist that's maybe that's my worst oh, feature but German. that is oh very German. un-german of me and uh, but that is I, I do believe that uh, that this transatlantic alliance is not dead and that it has the power and it has the attractiveness something that the entire china model doesn't have um to actually be inclusive and have um have a chance to to kick back um with maybe some changes in the washington policy scene so i don't want to give up on my optimism here I guess I'll split the difference. So, look, if we, if China isn't, like if the bet was off and China isn't going to become a partner in the liberal international order, then the liberal international order is dead. Or it's at least not international. Then it's the Western order, which is what the accusation has been the whole time. Then we have our little club that has its own rules, but it's definitely not international. Um, and so, to me, and maybe I'm just not original enough, that means this is a new Cold War. And hopefully it's cold and not super hot, like nuclear hot. Um, but basically, we have our little club. We try to convince people to join our club. Maybe we coerce people, whatever. Um, and then bribe, the opposite, bribe. we bribe, we bribe, that's right. Um, with all kinds of trade agreements. Um, and then the other side, you know, has their area, and it's basically containment, or the, their system. And it's some kind of containment. And um, that didn't work very well for a lot of the countries in between the first time, right? So that would be who I would be worried about the second time. If we can kind of manage, China seems reasonable enough that you could probably keep the war cold. Um, but there'll be all these proxy battles that will be quite bad. So the optimism is maybe Europe can hold itself together and uh, at least we can have the transatlantic club that keeps the liberal system alive, but then it's not international. Is that optimistic or pessimistic? I was going to say. The, yeah, I well, mean, if it stays a cold war, no. I mean, it's realistic, let's put it that way, but I it's mean, pessimistic. As far as these discussions go these days, that was relatively optimistic, I would say. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, there are people who say the international liberal order is neither international, not liberal, and it's not that orderly yes. anyway. So, yes. um, Okay, so... And technically, um, just calling it international doesn't mean it has to be universal or global. Correct, correct, I mean, it's correct. just... There, a, there are two countries involved. It's totally international. Okay, so with that, whoa, I'm seeing a lot of hands go up already. Um, so that could be good hey. or bad. Um, but we're going to take some uh, questions. I was promised some feisty ones. So I don't know how, maybe start up front here and then we'll go around the room. Thank you. And just a reminder, this is being recorded. 
you can say in the beginning, and probably Zach can edit you out if you don't want your question to be recorded, or you can ask a question with no name. I'm, I'm Andriano Giano. I'm the president of uh, the Youth of the European People's Party. I'm based here in Belgium. And I, I do think we, we see this, we approach this as, as a very top-down uh, issue, right? Uh, I don't think the main threat is either China or, or the Trump presidency. I do think that the threat is internal. Uh, I, I don't think, for example, that the uh, TTIP failed uh, because Chancellor Merkel didn't have a good relationship with Obama. It failed because we failed to persuade the average German that the international liberal order works for, for, for him or her, right? Um, and the answer we usually have is values. Well, I'm, I'm totally on, on board with values, but values don't pay the bills. So we have to explain to uh, the average European, the average American, what's the financial benefit uh, out of it, which is something we haven't done. I mean, we, we, always, uh, we always talk about values and, and, and abstract uh, issues. We never care to explain why transatlantic trade uh, or globalization or automation that's coming up uh, works for us and works for everybody, right? It's not an inclusive project. Um, so I think this is, uh, this is what we should do. I mean, the threats come from inside, I think. We already see in Europe that Europeans are willing to forego values and democratic rights and freedoms in return for security, and that includes financial security. So how do we make the international liberal order work for everybody, and how do we make that case? Okay? Uh, how do we spread the benefits? How does it become an inclusive project based on inclusive growth uh, so our populations will support it, not just the leaders? Should we take a couple and then? Sure. Or? Let's take some more. Okay. And then we can pick and choose. So maybe go over here and we'll take that row there. Niklas Novaki from the uh, Wilfried Martin Center for European Studies. Uh, one thing that ha hasn't yet been addressed in the sessions uh, uh, that we've had so far is the, uh, the B word or Brexit, and how that will affect the future of the transatlantic relationship and, 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 and this future of the international liberal, liberal order. So my question is, like, how will the U UK's uh, likely departure from the European Union uh, affect the, the, the transatlantic relationship, given that the United Kingdom has traditionally been the, uh, the, the America's closest allies in, in, in Europe and in a way acted as a, a bridge or a translator of, of uh, Brussels speak and Europe to the United States. And, and, and then also what sort of implications this might have on, on, on this uh, international liberal order. Thank you. Okay, maybe one more, like right next to you, sir. Hello, my name is Dave Ensberg from Netherlands. I'm the chairman of the school board and we teach our children the importance of the role of institutions like NATO and the UN. Uh, we haven't heard about this today, but I was really wondering, what, how do you see the future of these institutions we learn the importance of uh, to our children? Okay, should we maybe take around? You, you can pick and choose. I don't know, Josh, you want to go first? Pick, pick the easy ones. Sure. Uh, I agree with you. <laughs> with, you might have to say. Yeah. With the, no. <laughs> we, have lot, we have failed to explain the value, uh, the in, how our values serve our interests. And that threat was lost a long time ago. Uh, there is an effort in the United States to reinvigorate that argument. It's not that people haven't been saying it. It's that it never was politically relevant. You know, even in the campaign, this attack on globalization was never really about you, okay? It was about us. And it was part of an intentional scheme uh, to sort of pit economic nationalists in the left and the right 
and bring them together in a, what some of the Trump people thought would be a new political realignment against the globalists, neocon, neoliberal, you know, deep state, whatever, okay? So that was a, a cynical ploy for a short-term political gain. And now those very people are forced to deal with the implications of that. And, you know, there is a huge effort, and part of it is to make, try to make foreign policy politically uh, important, and that means directing a lot of money towards promoting foreign policy values and interests that we believe are shared in the political space. And that's new, but and there's like millions of dollars are going into it. But ultimately, you're never going to be able to make foreign policy a, a, a profitable political uh, investment, okay? That's just sort of working on the margins. Uh, I think in the end, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to try some bad ideas and watch them fail. It's the, you know, and so that's exactly what we're doing right now. So we're going to announce some tariffs. Let's see how that works out, okay? Let's, let's, let's let, you know, the, the, the counter-argument, which really hasn't been tested, let's test it, okay? I think we don't really have another choice, by the way. And then if and when it fails, as we all predict it will, then we'll have some data behind our argument that, oh, actually, we are better off with free trade. We are better off with market liberalization. We are better off with, you know, promoting societies that share our values because they're, you know, safer, more democratic, better to do business with, provide for better markets, bring more people out of uh, poverty to become our consumers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, I, you know, that, I'm not confident that's going to happen. I'm just saying that's what's going on. Uh, on Brexit, I'm... I, I'm going to defer to my colleagues here, but I'll just tell you that politically, uh, there's, there's not much in Washington going on. All right. That's seen as like between y'all. Okay. And you're going to have to work it out. And we don't, not only do we not have the bandwidth to really understand it, the administration doesn't have the competence to really address it in a proactive way. That's the bottom line. So after you figure it out, come tell us, then we'll figure out what we can do to, to, to do something about it. But you know, I don't, you guys have to understand the level of craziness, okay, that's going on in Washington right now, all right? Well, I, like, in the last month, I, we, we thought the chief of staff, the national security advisor, the secretary of state, and, you know, the head of the National Economic Council and the deputy national security advisor were all going to resign, okay? That's all in one month. And two out of five of them did resign, okay? All right, it's, it's bad, all right? It's not good, all right? You want us to deal with Brexit? We're not going to be able to deal with that. I'm sorry. Yeah. We've, we've all aged a bit. When, 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 when this presidency started, Josh and I were still young professionals. Last one, NATO and UN. You know, I think this is actually kind of like, a, like a, one of those Trump stories, which is like, oh, it, it, you know, it's like the music of Wagner. You know, it's not as bad as it sounds. Okay? And it's like, when you look at what the U.S. The US government is doing on NATO and UN, yeah, it's a change. It's like the typical sort of you know, we won't stand for Israel bashing. You got to pay your 2%. But on the working level, it's not really much change at all. And this is sort of one of the areas where sort of the institutions of the United States have constrained the president, okay? And there's a lot of examples of that, but I think those are two. Uh, so you might not like whatever is coming out of Nikki Haley's mouth on this day or that day, but overall, those teams, those systems, those structures are largely intact. So it's not, a bit, not as bad of a story as you might imagine. Can I just maybe I slightly disagree before but on the on the especially on the economic issue? So it's often been described. I think the when I have these discussions, oh, we need to do a better job explaining the benefits. I think 
you know, if you look at, especially in the U.S., you know, people are not that wrong about uh, that the system hasn't worked out, especially for the working class in, in Western countries. There's the famous elephant graph that shows this. But there's also the, I mean, we have rising inequality now for 30 years, no pay raise. We've had a gigantic financial crisis, you know, all, you know, committed, so to speak, by the elites that are now saying, well, you just don't get why this is good for you. So I think, and, and then, so I, I do understand where this is coming from. And to a degree, I think, as Josh pointed out, there's now, we'll have to see um, what happens if, if new things are tried and fail. But at the same time, you know, yes, there's now talk of tariffs, but they also just passed a massive tax cut, which is the exact same thing they've been doing. This is not, this is precisely not what um, arguably will, will help those, uh, um, the working class there. So I'm not that optimistic that the, this will, you know, lead to different outcomes and therefore realization until there's actual grappling, I think, in, in D.C. and probably also in New York with the fact that, you know, yes, globalization has been very beneficial for, for many people around the world, but it has been arguably so to at least some degree um, by, you know, at least hindering the advancement of certain working class, middle class folks in in the countries that support this order. Anyway. Yeah, I, I'll just jump in on that um, and, and double down. So as much as we have to convince, I'm from Michigan, right? Your average person from Michigan that trade is great. I'm a Michigander, exactly. Uh, that like trade is great for them. Um, I think we maybe need to do a better job of convincing big giant corporations that paying taxes is also good for the system um, because they're the other ones who I think haven't been convinced of their part in upholding the system. So if you want you know, the global economy, if you want a stable government, if you want great streets and great education that's going to provide you a workforce, um, then maybe you should pay some taxes. Maybe you should hire full-time maintenance staff and give them like proper living wage and not do everything through contractors, save your billions of dollars, and then start a foundation later. Um, so I think they need uh, uh, some education as much as your average used to be auto worker and now is supposed to be a call service worker or work at Taco Bell in Michigan. Can I jump in on the auto worker? Because I think there is also, what we shouldn't forget, a certain degree of personal responsibility here that um, I wouldn't want to forget in terms of the top-down, bottom-up approach. After all, it is the, you know, the masses that have been voting for parties that are obviously pursuing policies that are not in their interest. So I think it's not only about, I mean, I agree with you to a large degree on, on, on the question of you know, inclusiveness and raising inequality, but sometimes I think it is a bit too easy to blame everything on the elites that didn't figure it out pro- properly. I think the, the, the benefits of the liberal international order have also rendered a bit of a degree of complacency in the publics as well, that you, have a, you, know, you, have, you deserve a lot of things, but you don't have to stand up for them. And you don't have to vote for alternatives. You can be angry. Um, I think angry is not enough of an answer at the moment. Um, there are uh, grievances that have to be addressed. But um, the alternative, if you, look at, you know, if you look at China then, the alternative is a lot different. And, and sometimes I think that a threat potential on the outside might be helpful to gather the forces again on the inside. What about UN? I think you should take the UN question. Are you optimistic about the UN? I would agree with Josh on that one. What Really, what's been happening on the ground is not that different. There hasn't been a huge degree of enthusiasm about these institutions for a long time from the United States. Um, so I think that 
we shouldn't be too worried about you know a UNESCO pullout. It's happened before. Um, this is something that is in general not something that I'm concerned about. Um, NATO also, the working level relations haven't changed at all at that in that level. Um, the degree of the Obama administration made their allies feel good. It felt good to be an ally of the Obama administration for Europe. It was you know, fighting for the right cause kind of idea. But the policies were not that different. So this is a, more of a change in the, in the tone uh, right now than it is an actual policy. On, um, on Brexit, I think you put it right, perfectly right there for the DC end. Maybe there's also some truth to it in the Berlin and Brussels spheres as well. <laughs> kind of like let them the in London figure it out first and then we'll figure out how we react with it. The bandwidth overall to deal with that problem in the global sphere, I guess, is very limited. Uh, I'll just add on Brexit um, because sometimes I just don't learn and I'm like too diehard of a Anglophile, I think. So I think there's potential if the UK can figure out its own stuff and wants to, again, you know, be a part of, a productive part of the system. I mean, it was a good partner to the United States and it was a very important player in the system before it entered the EU. So that can happen again once all the mess is sorted out in the middle. Okay, let's take some more questions. There's one right here. Thank you. Uh, Patrick Hanley from the University of Chicago. You speak about the liberal international order built on unit states and diplomatic relationships, but increasingly the legitimacy of those states among the peoples is being challenged and hollowed out. Uh, I'd like for you to comment on sub-state interaction, the rise of sub-states, and tying that comment to your discussion of China. You refer to uh, them and they and the evolution of China, but I think you're speaking about the government. And I think you're speaking about a Politburo, which is increasingly uh, distancing itself from what's happening on the ground among the Chinese people, whereas the Chinese people are engaging in tremendous international cooperation and exchange uh, and economic cooperation. And so I'd kind of like to differentiate that out. Thanks. There's one all the way over here. Sorry. So my name is Godfrey Jimganda. Uh, I was born in Zimbabwe and I live in Ireland, Dublin. Um, so the issue of China and Africa and Europe, Europe is a former colonial and China is not. So the view has always been negative from the Africans. Now, when China comes in, it's visibly building buildings without being a, co a colonial power. So that relationship of always coming through like that will always be there. Then when you look at the West, especially the liberal order, it's all about regulation. We want you to do this. We want you to do this. This is the aid we're going to provide if you do that. And they're still talking aid. China is still talking a lot of capital investment. And, you know, there are Chinese deals. I'm from Zimbabwe. The first country that flew after the Mugabe uh, well it hasn't flew, but Mugabe left office was China and the difference between how the West reacted when they flew in is the West came in and talked still about the elections. China flew in and said we're ready to sign a new deal. A totally different approach which immediately uh, so my question basically is this in what ways do you think the strategic partnership 
and direction of Europe can actually change. And one more right here in the front. Uh, Amanda Brown at Brownstein Hyatt. Uh, my question is, in the, kind of building off of the statement that the, the global international order has, or the international liberal order, has in some ways failed uh, in, in the U.S. Um, and while there is rising income disparity, on the whole, I think you could say that well-being has risen overall. And I want your perspective on how we educate between the difference of the advantages of the international order and the pitfalls of that, and what are the pitfalls of just bad public policy? Because we see when we fail to pass uh, you know, increases in minimum wages, when we fail to have adequate labor protections, these are being conflated with globalization. And I think that's an inaccurate and unfair assumption to make. Great, those were all good questions, so, and difficult. Um, Yanka, do you want to go first this time? These were all excellent comments, I would say, on, on what we haven't addressed and what we, uh, what we should have addressed maybe in some of the ways. Um, let me just grab a few of the comments. I totally agree with you in terms of the Chinese people and the Chinese government distinction. It's completely right. It's just a matter of you know, simplifying the discussion here at, at this point in time. Um, and there's also a lot of unclarity at the moment where the, where, the, um, where the Chinese people are going. Are they going along with this or not going along with this? Um, this is going to be a very interesting debate because that is a force that we, you know, that you shouldn't underestimate. <laughs> that is that is potential that could very be very disruptive to the system that, that we were talking about right now. Um, the legitimacy of the of the sub-state level, I think that's the that's a huge challenge for the liberal international order because it just doesn't work with the established institutions. And that it has been tried in various occasions, and we've always kind of defaulted back to the state as the unit that kind of works. I have no good answer for that, but uh, just that we still have to figure out how to get the two together. Um, on bad public policy, I still agree. That was kind of what I was alluding to with the idea of personal responsibility as well, of leaders on very on every level, that, that it's not just the elites in Washington, but it's also the city council of Athens, Alabama, that is responsible for good policymaking in, uh, in their city and has to make sure that, you know, that, that, that social services are provided and all of these things. So it's a, it's a framework discussion, but it's also a policy discussion. And um, the, the equivalent of... of Blaming um, failed public policy on the international level it happens in Europe every day. You can blame, wonderfully blame, everything on Brussels that goes wrong in Berlin. And uh, it, it's done on it every day, and it's not a good policy advice as well. Yeah. So maybe to just comment on this before um, kicking it back to Josh. So the one interesting thing, I think, I fully agree with that there's a lot of um, things that get blamed on international issues that are actually just bad domestic um, Policy and trade. You said it earlier. TTIP was a, a good example of, you know, you can have very different views on that. But it was also a projection screen for a whole range of issues. I think that bubbled up, but there was still quite a bit of um, concern there. On on the other hand, I wonder, and I'll throw this out again: um, Does being embedded in institutions of the international liberal order, for example, you mentioned the EU, does it make it? more difficult to address some of these um, bad policies. We have this in, in Europe, this discussion with the euro, right? So you have very strict rules on what you can do and what you can't do. So is this a conflict? Just throw it out there as a thought. But Josh, you can take the easy other questions that are still left open. All right. Who asked about sub-state interaction? Yeah. So, you know, I, I remember a, a piece I read by a, a Professor Mark Lynch entitled, uh, We're All Constructivists Now, Okay. So, you know, here we are 100 years after Sykes-Picot, Middle East was reshaped. Why? To set those peoples up for self-government, right? 
That was the idea 100 years ago today, and it didn't work out that way, okay? They were taken over by a series of isms, okay? And the latest ism being Islamism, but it, you could say colonialism, you, whatever you, all the isms that we saw, and it didn't, and a, a, of course a huge part of that is because we failed to recognize the dynamics inside these countries and across these borders, and we're still failing to do that. It's clear, and it's the remedy for that, but you're correct in identifying that problem. Uh, um, Chinese government versus the Chinese people, I would put it one, I'd make it one more step of, of uh, distinction here, the Chinese Communist Party versus, uh, that's, that's the distinction, okay? Even the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party have to be identified as two separate things, and the reason is because the Chinese Communist Party has its own specific activities in foreign countries. They're called United Front Activities. Uh, they are identified to this day in Maoist terms as to mobilize the party's friends to strike at its enemies. It's done through a network of party organizations uh, that interact with corporations, think tanks, universities, governments, politicians, city councils, you name it, okay? So when we're talking about sort of the Chinese threat to the liberal international order, I think we have, there's a growing community, especially in Washington, but of course in many countries around the world, and I think of Australia and New Zealand off the top of my head, uh, that is now working in a concerted way to expose uh, united front activities in free societies and come up with some ways to deal with them, and that's a complicated question, okay, that we can get into if you want. Now, the companies are a key portion of this because they are, for, to a large extent, under the control of the party, or at least beholden to the party when it tells them to do stuff. And the sheer size growth of these companies combined with their, you know, criminal, predatory investment, theft, espionage, integrated in a way that presents a, a, an existential challenge to the economic system that we all depend on, okay? So, yes, we have no problem with the Chinese people. We have some problems with the Chinese government. We have a lot of problems with the Chinese Communist Party, and especially when it comes to the United Front Network, uh, that's something that we can no longer ignore. And, uh, you know, I defer to your analysis of China in Africa you know, I would just say a couple of quick things. You know, uh, you know China, it, what does what China not do in Africa? Humanitarian aid, right? You never find a bag of rice with a Chinese stamp on it, right? Okay, there's what it, in 1994, before the Rwanda genocide, two weeks before actually, the Chinese company delivered what? 750,000 machetes, okay? So you can, yes, the Chinese are very good at putting up soccer stadiums and they're very reliable in like flooding these countries with capital that, debt that they can have no chance of ever paying back. Um, but we have to also be clear-eyed about what the effect of China's enabling of, you know, just really atrocious, you know, widespread repression in a lot of these countries has. And I would also add, we have to be clear-eyed about Chinese repression inside China. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's a great answer. I can't really, uh, I can't go, I don't know enough about sort of what the EU is really doing in Africa in terms of numbers or whatever. Um, and I think it's not that easy. So of course it's problematic, the like 
conditionality and the paternalistic nature of some of these things, especially since we know the economic advice that, you know, the Washington consensus gave for 20 years wrecked a whole lot of economies, right? And now we think we have the answer again. Um, so I see the problem there. On the other hand, if you're giving lots of aid, um, you know, it doesn't help the people of country X if you know 40% of that money goes directly into someone's pocket. So there is a, you know, there's a good intention there um, that's been, you know, misused or misdirected very often. Um, but I think it comes back to if we want to compete, then we have to give a better offer and we're definitely not giving better offers. So that would be the lesson for um, Europe. And there I would say, like, it, Europe should stop complaining and step up. This is their neighborhood. Um, so, sorry, but the, I don't think it's the U.S.'s job to save you. Like, step up and make a better offer um, or deal with the consequences. Okay, so this is good. Uh, we have solved all the questions and actually are ending right on time. So I want to thank uh, our guests and also our audience for not booing us off the stage uh, for our first experiment here. Thank you very much. Out of Order is a German Marshall Fund podcast produced by Kelsey Glover. Sound design engineered by Zachary Tarrant. <laughs>